All right, so we're in Acts chapter 24, and last week, if you were here, uh, you know we saw two more points, I think, concerning uh, the first church that we can apply in, as lessons in our life today. And we learned a lot from several different people along this journey and circumstances throughout this whole study. And as of late, we've learned a lot from the Apostle Paul and what God has been leading him through. But these are the two points that we saw last week. First of all, uh, Satan's schemes are effective, but only within the bounds of God's sovereignty. And we know that Satan is a schemer. We, he's, he's been a schemer from the beginning. We know that his plans are effective. We read uh, the first chapter of Job last week, and we know that, that God sometimes allows the enemy to uh, work in different ways. And, and why we can't understand that, because we think, well, if God's holy, he's all-powerful, and Satan's evil and his enemy, why in the world would God allow that to happen? Well, God is sovereign, and we are not. God is all omniscient. He knows everything. We are not. God is eternal, and we are not. But one of the things that we, we saw, we've, we've seen along this journey is this. We live in a fallen world, and there are consequences to the sin that exists inside of a fallen world. And while it's a, it's a temporal time, we're, we're under this, this, uh, this, this season, if you will, of living on this earth that Satan is the prince and the power of the air. He's the god of this world. And so on, on, on this fallen earth, with consequences that, that are just because of sin, God sometimes can even use those things that Satan's trying to work for evil and turn them for good. And so uh, we know that, man, Satan can do doozies sometimes. Many of us are, are recipients of some of those great schemes that he can pull, those darts that he can throw and uh, the hurt that it can cause in our lives. But uh, we also know point number two is that suffering sometimes is the path that God allows to further his kingdom. And while we can't understand that too, well, if God loves me, he knows the numbers of hair on my head. He knows, you know, the numbers of my days. He, he saved me. He loves me. He, I'm his child. Why in the world would God allow me to suffer to further his kingdom? And uh, again, he's sovereign. We are not. But sometimes we go through these things and it teaches us things and sometimes it teaches others things that we would not otherwise have learned and those other people, others may not have learned or seen God do in our life. And again, that's, that's a difficult pill to swallow. So I don't want to be the one to go through it and God show somebody else, you know, something good through my bad. And uh, which is the wrong mindset because we're supposed to have the mind of Christ, right? When he did no evil, Yet he suffered on our behalf, the ones that did evil. And what do we learn? That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So we, we learn the grace of God, the forgiveness of God uh, through his suffering. And uh, so again, it's, it's an amazing thing. We learned that Paul wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong um, in, in our eyes. Well, we look at his life and say, well, he's not doing anything worthy of suffering. Why was he in prison? Why was he being stoned? Why did they want to kill him? But he was suffering in the path of obedience to Christ. And I want that to sink in again. He was suffering in the path of obedience to Christ. He was simply trying to be a vessel of honor to the Lord. He was trying to be an instrument of righteousness. He was trying to be who God had called him to be. And in, in doing that, it brought him suffering. And I, I want to encourage you with that because, again, that was our second point. Sometimes suffering is the path that God allows to further his kingdom. And maybe you're going through something right now, or maybe God's leading you to a season of trial and suffering. Maybe it's affliction. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it was whatever it is, but stay true. Stay obedient. 
stay faithful. Because, man, if you don't stay faithful, you're going to miss what God wants to do in your life and through your life, even in that suffering. And some people forget that. They forget that suffering, whether it is affliction or whether it's sickness or even loss of life, persecution in the path of obedience is a way that can shine the light that God has put in us that sometimes it can't shine any other way. We can share with those inside the body of Christ and outside. What Paul told the Corinthians I think is so vital under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And we're always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So here's how it works. It says death works in us. We're dying. We've thrown, been thrown in prison. We're being stoned. We're being afflicted. We're being all these things that he just mentioned before. But what it ends up doing is producing life in other people's lives. This morning we move forward and we're going to see Paul before the governor Felix. He's the governor of Judea. He's hearing Paul's case after receiving a letter from the Roman commander Lysias. If you were here again, you know that this guy sent a letter uh, trying to make himself sound really, really good to the governor. Uh, he was telling him that Paul was a Roman citizen and that the Jews were wanting to kill him uh, because of something that he obviously did to offend their religious law. So when Felix learned that he was from an area Within his jurisdiction, he was willing to hear his case, but he wasn't going to do it until Paul's accusers came and he could hear the, the whole case. So this is where we pick up Acts chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named uh, Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus had, uh, began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have, through you, attained much peace. Now here comes the brown nosing. Here comes the buttering up, right? Here comes the, the, the good before we, we slide in what we want. So he says, you, it's through you, great government, that we attain much peace. And since by your providence, reforms are being carried out for this nation. I mean, you are really changing the landscape of this nation. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. What a buttering up, right? I mean, he was, I mean, you are wonderful. I mean, you are the best governor this land has ever seen. All your reforms and changes, it's just making this place a lot better place to live. We, we are so humbled and so thankful that we can come before your great presence and, and, and present to you this, this case. We don't want to take long because we know you're a busy guy and you're really, really important. So we want to bring this before you. We found this man is a real pest. <laughs> That's a good case, right? That's the first lane. This guy's a pest to us. He's a, he's a jerk. And a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews through the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Aha! This smart attorney. That, that right there was one of the main things. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. 
But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands. Remember, Lysias made himself sound like the hero. And now Tertullus is, is telling the governor, look, Lysias came along and he, man, he was a violent man. He, he took violent action and he took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you by examining him, uh, examine, by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. So, that's the case. That's what he was wanting to present. They basically want either the Romans to crucify Paul like they did Jesus, or they want the, the governor to hand him back over to them so that they can kill him, right? They were in the middle of trying to kill him whenever Lysias showed up by much violence, took him out of their hands. So, the Jews at this point in time joined in the attack asserting that these things were so. And so, you can imagine you know, kind of the, uh, a courtroom, an old courtroom. It's, it's hard for us to imagine the way it looked back then, but uh, maybe sometimes our Congress looks like this where there begins to, to be an uproar. Sometimes parliaments, I don't know if you've seen news clips of certain parliaments getting in an uproar and, and going back and forth. That's kind of the, the picture that we get from the text is as the, the, this attorney makes the case, then everybody, the, all the Jews in the crowd began to just kind of make a, uh, make a ruckus. I want you to notice again how the attorney tried to butter the governor up. He was trying to, he was trying to get his uh, play on his, uh, his pride, not, not on his justice. But we see a great contrast here, a, a strong contrast, and it's causing a problem. It's causing a problem between the religious Jews, and it's going to cause a problem with this governor. And point number one is this, the contrast in our lives should be obvious to the lost world to the point of tension. The contrast in our lives should be obvious to the lost world to the point of tension. You know, sometimes we, we live in this um, politically correct time, and there's a lot of people that are afraid of offending people with the gospel. And I'm not talking about people who are Christians who are getting prideful and arrogant and harmful and fleshly and doing harm to the name of Christ in that pride and arrogance. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who are simply trying to, in love and compassion, share the gospel and share the truth with other people. When we do that, it causes problems. People won't like us. The world won't want to be around us. We won't fit in. I mean, that's just the reality. The contrast in our lives should be obvious to the lost world to the point of tension. The people that were in our lives, if you were saved as, an, as, a, as a teen or a young adult or even an older adult, and the friends that you had before you were saved, they more than likely changed after you were saved. And the reason why is not because you became holier than thou. It's, it's the contrast in the lifestyle that you were living before Christ and the, and the lifestyle that you're living now in Christ causes tension. And the darkness doesn't like to be around the light. And so most of the time, friends and family members don't like hanging out with you once you got saved, once you get saved. That's just a reality. Now, there's some who put up with you, and, and, and they still hang out with you, and they still love you. And there's some that, that can overcome that, uh, and they're, they're embellishing themselves in their, their own uh, lost state, and, and, and that's the way it could be. But the, just everything Scripture teaches us is that the contrast in our, our lives causes tension. 
Again, it's been obvious. You can go back to Moses and the prophets. Noah. I mean, you just go on and on. Jesus, Paul. It's obvious that those who are living for God look and live different from those who are in the world who are living for the world and living for sin. And that is the point of tension. That's the point of tension. You see, the, a lot of people say, well, yeah, but man, I, aren't we going to supposed to hang out with them and, and, and be like them so that we can reach them? And I would say, absolutely not. That's nowhere in Scripture that we are to be like them in order to reach them. It's nowhere in Scripture. Jesus was very clear, and I want to remind you, I've shared this in this study already, but John chapter 15, verse 18. Listen, these are the words of our, our Lord. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you, listen to what he says, if you were of the world, if you were still in the world, living for the world, living for sin, then the world would love its own. You would fit right in. Man, everybody would think that you are still so cool. But he's telling his followers, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, Jesus is talking, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would, have not, uh, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that was in their law. They hated me without a cause. And when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. And I've talked a lot about the fact that the church has lost its impact in the culture. The church has lost its impact in our nation that it once had. And the question that always comes to mind is why? Why has, if, if the Holy Spirit of God, Almighty God, lives inside of each individual believer, and the Holy Spirit of God indwells the, 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 the church, the temple, which the Bible says both happens, and they're, they're not uh, exclusive of each other, they, they work in coordination. In other words, we aren't, well, I'm the church, I don't have to be together with a church. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wrong. I incorrect. It's only within the context of the church. You can read it, you can study it. I promise that's exactly what God has designed and intended. We aren't to be separate individuals. We are the body of Christ. If we have the Holy Spirit, the almighty, all-powerful Holy Spirit of God in us, and we are placed in this community and placed in this nation, then why in the world are we not seeing more of an impact for the kingdom of God? And I, I mentioned it before, but I think one of the main factors is laziness. Laziness because of an affinity for comfort and pleasure. I think, I mean, if we're, if we're honest, we just get spiritually lazy. 
I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or nod your head or anything like that, but most Christians today struggle with being disciplined in their daily walk with the Lord. Most Christians do. And the reason why is exactly what we shared last week, uh, Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul himself in, he says, I have this battle in this, this body. I live in a fleshly body that's temporal, that knows the pull of sin and, and the world, and, and it still wants to go after those things. Inside, my spirit that's redeemed, it, it wants to go after the law of God. Every day, man, I delight that that's what I want. I want God's word. I want to obey the Lord. I want to walk in fellowship with them. But I have a battle going on in this temporal body right now. And my only hope, he says, is Jesus Christ. That's who gives me the victory. But what ends up happening is most of us, because we have so much comfort and pleasure in this nation, we just get pulled. This affinity for these things pulls us over. And what ends up happening is we get spiritually lazy. And then I think that laziness turns into apathy. Like as long as I've got this stuff and as long as I can do these things, I'm okay. I mean, I still go to church. That's not at all what the Lord wants from our lives. We've talked about the fact that in our comfort-seeking endeavors, many have bought the lie that you can live for Jesus and live for the world. That you can be a Christian just because you know the biblical answers to what it means to be saved. Just because you know the scriptures that tell someone how they can be saved or how they are saved doesn't mean that you are saved. Because just because you know those things, yet your heart, your allegiance, your devotion, your life is set on what you want, money, hobbies, entertainment, etc., again, doesn't mean that you have been born again. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, we're studying this first church and what it looked like for them and what we can learn for them. And what we see is not much as the same contrast from our lives in the world as we see then. But sadly, a contrast between professing believers today. Again, we see in this first church a great stark contrast between those who were truly in Christ and those who weren't then. But today, in 2022, what ends up happening is a stark contrast between professing believers that show up at church. So while the contrast in our lives from the world should be what causes tension, we see contrast in the lives of those who attend church causing tension. And who do you think is pleased when that's the case? God or the enemy? Right? The, the tension is supposed to exist outside with, with us and those who are outside of the body of Christ. But so many people attend church, and that's where a lot of the tension exists. Well, I don't think that you have to do that. I go to church. Uh, I don't think, I mean, I'm not going to be overboard in my relationship with Christ. I, I mean, I still got a lot of stuff that I got to take care of. A lot of tension exists within those who attend church. I think that we need to stop living in the lie that it has to look like the crazies at Westboro Baptist. Some of you don't know who that is, but a bunch of crazies who are legalists, who I believe are lost. They're a cult. 
but so are the Joel Olsteinians. It doesn't have to look like one or the other, whoever. Our lives should not look like the religious legalist who missed it. The Bible says they missed it in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And our lives shouldn't look like those who were so wrapped up in sin in the world that they couldn't follow God. It shouldn't look like someone who has biblical answers yet isn't clearly following Christ, distinct from the world. See, you can have all the biblical answers you want, but if you are not following Christ, you are not in Christ. What's the, how do you know? Well, one of the examples that, that we learned about completely following Christ was the rich young ruler. Matthew chapter 19, and some, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one good. He was establishing the fact that he was God. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He, he, Jesus already knew this guy's heart. He already knew what he was going to do. But he was trying to expose, just like the Word of God still does today, expose the flaw, ex, expose the sin in this young man's life so that he could deal with it. And that's exactly what the Word of God does still today. So he said to them, said back to Jesus, which ones do you want me to follow? Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, listen, all these things I have kept, I'm, I'm sinless. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have any flaws, I'm perfect. I, I, I don't have any mistakes. That's what he said. All these things I've kept, I've observed all these things. What am I lacking then? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come, listen to what he says. He doesn't stop there. Okay, I'm going to play on the fact that you're, you're, your God is your money. I'm going to play on the fact that you are lifted up with pride. I'm going I'm, I'm to expose to you that you are living for yourself. Now, it wasn't, he, he, was, he was trying to go back to those first four commands. You shall have no other gods before me. So he says to the man, follow me after you do this. Well, the young man heard this statement. He went away grieving. The reason why is because he owned much property. He was rich. And Jesus said to the disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. They said, well, who could be saved? I mean, who, I mean, if there's a lot of rich people around, who, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Peter said to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. I mean, I got, I got a wife and family back home. I, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? I mean, what, it, what does it look like for us? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, talking to those twelve apostles there. And everyone, but then he makes a dis disclaimer here, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, We'll receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. The truth is this. Our lives should look drastically different from the religious legalist and 
from the professing Christians living for self, sin, and the world. And it should be obviously distinct from those who are simply lost in their sin. But if we're following Christ, it should be obvious. Again, for the Apostle Paul, it was a great point of tension, both for those who were religious and those who were still in their sins. The fact that he was following Christ was bringing him to a point where he was, his life was on the line. I mean, I know we live in an amazingly blessed nation of America where we're free, but is there any tension in our life between us and those who are lost around us? Is there any tension between us and those who are religious around us? Because if we're truly following Christ, I believe that there will be. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice in John 10, and I know them, and they follow me. A few chapters later in 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So Paul, in contrast to these religious legalists, was accused of, and this is interesting, three things. He was accused of, as, of being a worldwide troublemaker, stirring up riots everywhere. The second thing he was accused of it was that he was a leader of the Nazarene sect. And then the third thing is that he attempted to desecrate the temple. The first charge had political overtones because Rome desired to maintain order throughout its whole kingdom. So the fact that he was going around and stirring, around, uh, stirring up this worldwide riot would be a concern to this governor. But the second charge was also concerning the government because Tertullus made it appear that Christianity was divorced from the Jewish religion. See, Rome permitted Judaism as a legal religion but it wouldn't tolerate any new religions. That's why Turles, as this attorney, that's why I said it was such a good, good point for him to bring up to this governor, is that he's of this new Nazarene sect. Well, well, no, we're not allowing new ones. So it made Paul's faith look cultic and bizarre. Desecrating the temple also had political overtones because the Romans had given the Jews permission to execute any Gentile who went inside the barrier of their temple. So at this point, he modified the original charge that was made in chapter 21. There Paul was accused of being a Gentile and bringing, uh, bringing, I'm sorry, bringing a Gentile into the temple. Here it is said to have attempted desecration. The truth was severely damaged in the, in the clause, so we seized him. And the implication being that they took Paul to arrest him. So he has his chance. And here it is, verse 10. The governor had nodded for him to speak. Paul is allowed to talk. What is he going to say? Right? Here's your chance. You're before the governor. Your life is in his hands. You've been given freedom, liberty, to say whatever you're going to say at this moment. This is your chance. You, all the cameras on you, the microphones, it's streaming worldwide. I mean, this is in our modern day understanding, right? This is your opportunity. This is to, to make the biggest bang. What are you going to do? Are you going to defend yourself? Are you going to try to make them look bad? What are you going to do in this moment, Paul? Here he goes. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, which he would have known, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. 
But this I admit to you, that according to the way, the way, which they call a sect, I do serve God, the, the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. In, this, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. Nothing was going on like that. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell that, that what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. So he said, this, this, is, this is the reason why I'm standing before you, the resurrection of the dead. And look what happens. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, which, again, he, he, he did know about this. His wife was Jew, uh, putting them off, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. So he, he was like, now I'm frustrated. You know, I mean, I've heard their case. I've heard Paul's defense. No one has brought concrete evidence. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait till Lysias, the commander, comes down, and then I'll, I'll make a judgment. So he gave orders for the centurion to, to keep him kept in custody and have some, yet to have some freedom, which is amazing, right? It's, it's, it's a crazy situation. The Apostle Paul is in prison, but he, can, he has some freedom. It says that uh, and he, not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So he could have visitors. He was just kind of in a house arrest or whatever. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla. Obviously, they don't, went away for a little bit. Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Right? Paul, Paul is a traveling evangelist, number one. Number two, he, he's just making tents on the side, but he's house arrest right now. How in the world is he going to have money? I maybe, maybe thought some of the friends that were coming to visit him could, could give him money. Therefore, he, he also used to send for him quite often to converse with him, see if he could get money any time that he had, had a conversation with him. But the second point is this, and then we'll wrap this up soon. The conviction in the gospel message is still and will always be the vital decision point for all. The conviction in the gospel message is still and will always be the vital decision point for all. If you notice that he said that he was talking about the faith in Jesus Christ and reason with him and righteousness and judgment to come. The truth is this, we, we cannot be afraid to share the gospel because we're worried about someone getting upset. And I have to say, I, there, there's been times in my life that I've been guilty of this. I don't know if it's the right time. I don't know, man, they're, they're, I'm not talking about disregarding this, being sensitive to the Spirit or, or, or not following the Spirit's lead, but I, I'm, I'm saying there have been times that I've been more worried about maybe someone getting upset than whether I was following the Holy Spirit or not. Paul's life literally hung in the balance here. This, this, this guy could determine that he would die that day if he wanted to. 
Yet in this opportunity, he shared the truth from God's word, the gospel, the faith in Jesus Christ that points to righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And the reason why this is vital is that unless someone hears the gospel, how can they be convicted? And, and without conviction, there is no opportunity for repentance. Repentance is necessary for salvation. There has to be a change in direction. You, we read Jesus. It's all through Scripture. 2 Corinthians seven ten. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Part of the gospel, which means good news, is sharing the bad news. The bad news brings about godly sorrow for a ready heart. That good soil that Jesus talked about, the bad news brings about godly sorrow. What is the bad news? Romans 3.10, uh, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. More bad news. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the first part of it, part of the bad news. The wages, what we get for sin is death. The good news with the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Each, each person, every single person must face the reality that God will one day judge the world in righteousness. Every single person needs to hear that. Listen, if the lost are not warned that they will stand before God in judgment one day, how can they have the fear of God in their heart? Felix heard this and was trembling. He was afraid when he heard about righteousness and the judgment to come. He was afraid, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And that's exactly how some people respond. I don't want to think about hell. I don't want to think about eternal, e eternity. Acts 17, verse 31, because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to, to all men by raising him from the dead. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and, grant, and to grant relief to you, he's talking to the Thessalonian believers, but still applicable to us today, who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, listen, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Again, the Bible says that Felix became afraid, shook conviction and fear, struck the heart of this governor. Why? Well, self-control, righteousness, judgment to come. His marriage to Drusilla was his third. And so, well, sometimes that happens. But he had to break up another marriage to secure her. His regime was marked by injustices that contrasted the righteousness of God. And he was a man grossly lacking in self-control, history tells us. The duplicity and the greed of Felix is seen in his desire to be bribed by Paul. Over and over it says that he asked for him to come to him, and every time he asks to give him money. Hey, you getting some money? I'll let you go, man. Paul understood what his purpose was even in this difficulty. To share the only power and hope that there is, and that is the gospel, is what Romans 1.16 tells us. We have to remember there's no other way for people to get saved other than to hear the truth, hear the gospel, 
It will convict, but they have to hear in order for it to happen. As I close, I want to read Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Then not... Uh, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does the righteousness based on on faith say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Here it is. That if, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone to proclaim it, a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes... From hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning and challenge you this morning. Whether it's before governors, whether it's with your neighbors, whether it's with your friends or your family, whether it's in front of a school board or a city council, let's be faithful to share the gospel. Man, the tension is going to exist. It's going to be there. We need, I think that you and I should, should learn to grow accustomed to the tension that has been obvious throughout the church's history with the church and the lost world. I'm not saying that we try to we, you know, contrive it, that we try to, to stir it up and, and make it happen. I'm not saying that we try to, to, to make ourselves look bad in the testimony. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you know, we, we get out on Facebook and, and, and blast people. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is we should be faithful and passionate and zealous to follow Jesus Christ and to share the gospel and get used to the tension that exists in living a life like that. Because, man, I want to be found faithful when he returns. I want to be found faithful when he comes back so that he is glorified among all those who believed. Because he's coming back in judgment. And he will, as we read, judge the world in righteousness. He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all those who did not believe the gospel. And I don't want to be guilty of not sharing it with them. I want them to have the opportunity to hear it, to be convicted and repent. Let's get used to that. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you again for this opportunity just to spend some time in your word and learn Yet again, from this first church, God, we thank you for the examples that you put before us. We thank you for the truth that you've delivered to us, that you've entrusted to us. Lord, I pray that we would not only hold to the truth, but we would proclaim the truth. We would share the truth. God, we would do just as the Apostle Paul did here before 
the governor. He, while he was defending himself, he obviously took advantage of the opportunity to share the good news. He obviously took the opportunity every time he had private conversations with this governor to share the gospel. Lord, help our lives look like that. We get so wrapped up in our work. We get so wrapped up in our hobbies. We get so wrapped up in comfort and convenience and pleasures and all these things of this world, and we forget that we're here for a mission. That's why you've left us here, Lord. I pray that we would remember our life is to be lived on mission. God, in that we would understand that there's going to be tension. There's going to be difficult relationships that we have with people who are outside of the body of Christ. And I pray that we would just operate in compassion and faithfulness and sharing the gospel regardless. Lord, if there's somebody here this morning, maybe it's the first time that they heard the bad news and the good news, that they were a sinner, and that, that you will judge them one day in their sin, and they will be destroyed for all of eternity unless they turn to you in faith. Today could be that day of salvation for them, whether they're watching online or whether they're here in person, God, if there's somebody that has never surrendered their life to you, they've never repented and turned their life completely over to you. And I pray you would do that work this morning. God, that they would be born again and they would enter into eternal life. They would pass from death to life this morning. I want to praise you for this, Lord. I ask you to move and just help us to respond in the right way. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand as he sings, I want to invite you to come.